Our great Lord, how majestic and wonderful it is for us to know that you have entered within that veil for us. You have offered yourself as the sacrifice, being both priest and sacrifice. And it is by your own blood that we are cleansed. It is by your own life and resurrection that we live. You did not stay in the grave, but you entered, or you came out of the grave to enter back into heaven at the right hand of the Father, from where you've sent the Spirit and from where you now forever live to make intercession for us. We ask you now, please, as we hear you speak in your word, recorded for us by the Spirit of God through the pen of Matthew, that we would hear not the words of a man, not simply the words of a book, but the words of our God. Teach us. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart that yields to you in adoring obedience and worship and affection. We pray this now in your most precious name. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. We'll be looking this morning at verses 28 through 32. Verses 28 through 32. And as we are going to say repeatedly as we walk out or live this last week of the life of Jesus through the gospel of Matthew, he is once again in a confrontation with the religious leaders of Judaism who reside in Jerusalem and whose area of service is in the temple where Jesus now finds himself, as we said, The second full day after he entered into Jerusalem amid the shouts and the praises of his people recorded for us in the beginning verses of chapter 21. In these last days of Jesus' life, he is moving tragically into what could honestly be called enemy territory. Enemy territory. And let me tell you, if you think about that, that is a very sad statement. It's a heartbreaking statement. It reminds you at once of the words of John in his gospel that he came to his own and his own received him not. Not only rejected by creation, but his covenant people. And we're living that rejection as we walk through Jesus' days in Jerusalem. And it's sad and it's grievous because Jerusalem was the place of God's temple. It was the place of worship. It was the place that God ordained where He would meet with His people and they would meet with their God. It was the place that the psalmist could sing and the Jews would repeat these words as they went up to the feast. He said in Psalm 122, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. This is Jerusalem, of whom it was said in Psalm 147, Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. And that was to be the environment, the heart, the atmosphere of the gathered people of God in the city of Jerusalem before the temple of God which should be a place filled with joy of righteousness and praise, is instead, by Jesus' own words in Matthew 21, 3, a den of robbers, or a robber's den. 
Even worse, Jesus has now entered into what could be termed, if we could borrow the language of Revelation 3.9, a synagogue of Satan. This is Jerusalem that Jesus is now entering into or is in. It had become a place of empty religion. And even worse than empty religion, it had become what was merely a facade or a mask of religious devotion to God when in fact it was a house and a place ruled by the servants of Satan himself. Does that sound harsh? Does that sound harsh? These are the words of Jesus. We're well familiar. They've been repeated often. John eight forty four. he says to leaders of Jerusalem... He was a murderer, speaking of Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning. And you want to do the desires of your father. Speaking there of the devil. And in fact, Mark eleven eighteen, 18, in the same context, the parallel passage has said, the chief priest and the scribes were at this very moment seeking how they might destroy him because they were afraid of him. So these religious leaders and this religious system were more under the influence of Satan than the Spirit of God. And sadly, this kind of unbelief and empty religion that kept only an outward form of religion but rejecting the love of God in the heart describes much of the history of Israel. Psalm 95.10, which is also quoted in Hebrew 3, says this, Speaking of that very generation that saw his great deliverance out of the land of Egypt, that saw him display his glory against the so-called gods of Egypt and confirm his covenant with his people who are now a nation. He said this to that generation in Psalm 95.10, For forty years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. And of course, that would be a reality that would be proven over and over again throughout the history of Israel. And there are simply too many places to point to to make this point. But before we come to our text this morning, I want to show you just one Old Testament passage uh, to lead our thoughts into Matthew 21. It's in Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. In Jeremiah chapter 7, he is addressing a people who are being prepared essentially for this coming judgment of God, for their iniquity, for their idolatry, for their rejection of their covenant God. And we're turning to Jeremiah 7 because it's very likely that the Lord had this passage in the back of his mind throughout the events that we're encountering in Matthew chapter 21. In fact, he has already quoted from Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 11 when he entered into uh, the temple on the second day and cast out those who were doing their business there. Jeremiah 7.11 says this, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, even I have seen it. His interaction with the leaders in Matthew 21, verses 23 through 27, we saw last week, and the parable of the two sons we'll consider this morning, are likely drawn from Jeremiah 7.28 through 32 and 25 through 26. In other words, the rebellion of the people in Jeremiah 7 matches the rebellion of the leaders who he's confronting in Matthew chapter 21. 
Now the background to Jeremiah 27 is that God is addressing a people who essentially have a false hope in the temple. Verse 4, do not trust in deceptive words saying this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Apparently there were those who were false prophets among the people saying you don't need to heed God's true prophets that are telling of destruction. God would never destroy his temple. This is of course before that final and devastating Babylonian invasion beginning in 605 B.C. He is warning them not to trust in these deceptive words. Not to presume on God's covenant. This is a people who instead of righteousness have indulged in idolatry, disobedience, and he's warning them not to take rest in a false security. God reminds them that he knows their sin and that he has never been concerned about externals but a heart that loves him. Read with me in these few verses in verse 21 through 28, which really form the background of what we're going to come to this morning. Addressing this people, God says through Jeremiah, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat flesh. For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this is what I commanded saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you will be my people, and you will walk in all the way which I command you, that it may be well with you. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and in the stubbornness of their evil heart, and went backward and not forward. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have sent you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising early and sending them. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did more evil than their fathers. You shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. And you shall call to them, but they will not answer you. You shall say to them, this is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God or accept correction. Truth has perished and been cut off from their mouth. These are the words of God to his people who refused to listen to him. What he meant in verses 21 through 23 is that his prescription or his command of sacrifices were not at the heart of the worship of him, but at the heart of the worship to him was a heart devoted to him in loving affection and trust and gratitude and obedience. That's what it was about. That's what God was calling for. But that generation rejected it, and so it is with this generation of Matthew 21. Though they don't have the same issue of physical idols and open wickedness, they trusted in the idol of their own self-righteousness. They trusted in the idol of their own religious system, and they neglected the love of God. God sent them prophets. God sent them John. God sent them His Son, and they closed their ear to Him. The people held to a false hope in their religion, a false hope in the very covenant which they scorned by their disobedience and refusal to listen to God. And unless we think this is merely past tense, there is a word here for us, because the same thing could be said to much of the professing church of God, who claims to have a religious system in which they display their knowledge of God, and yet they promote all manner of wickedness. And so it is for them, and so it is for us. Now, at the heart of unbelief, then, is a refusal to believe God's word. 
at the heart, or excuse me, at the heart of unbelief is sin, and by that sin, refusing to believe God's word. And this is what we're confronted with again in Jesus' parable in Matthew 28 through 32. Go back there and turn with me. And he is going to unveil for us this truth, that unbelief is both sin and the fruit of sin. And yet in the midst of that, God will save a people that humble themselves before him. Let's read verses 28 and read down to verse 32. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he said, I will not. But afterwards he regretted it and went. The man came to the second and said the same thing, and he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not feel remorse afterward so as to believe him. A simple and a very powerful parable. Look back up at verse 21 and let's look at it more closely. And let's note first of all then a penetratingly simple parable. A penetratingly simple parable. And Jesus is giving this story to drive home the point that he's already made in verses 23 through 27. Which is essentially this. You have rejected the very plain reality that the ministry of John the Baptist that pointed to me is from God. They rejected God's message through John the Baptist and therefore they rejected God's Son, Christ Himself. And Jesus is here in these, this story then nailing the lid to the coffin of their judgment and He wants them to see at ever-deepening levels that your rejection and your unbelief are without excuse. They are without excuse. And in the midst of such a point in this parable, there is a beautiful picture of God's grace. And yet it is that very picture of God's grace that only confirms even more the hardness of their heart and increases their condemnation. These are indeed heavy points. These are indeed hard to hear week in and week out. But it is the reality that is the heart of man and the system that has rejected God. Now Jesus is going to introduce and apply the parable with two questions. And as we mentioned last week, this was a common way for rabbis to teach. They would bounce questions off of one another. And so Jesus is certainly firmly within that tradition. And yet, his reason for using questions here goes much deeper than that. He's causing them to think more clearly about his point. He's forcing them by their own acknowledgement and reason to make his own point for him from their own lips. And this is a very effective way of witnessing. And we would make a note here that this is, when we witness, a very effective way to bring out the inconsistencies of those we speak to. Ask them questions. Get them to make admissions by their own lips. We could learn from Jesus here. But Jesus is coming then to these leaders and he's asking them a question and his first question is this in verse 28 but what do you think what do you think again he's inviting them to consider the following story make an honest determination see what conclusion you come to and he's asking us to do the same 
And he gives them a simple story then. He says, a man had two sons. A man had two sons, and he goes and he asks them to work in his vineyard, and he records then their responses. Let's make a few observations. We've already read it, so let's just walk through it again and notice some things about it. First of all, this man is obviously a father of at least two sons and the owner of a vineyard. A vineyard here may very well be a picture of Israel, and it very clearly will be in the following parable that we'll introduce next week. And nonetheless, this man is simply an owner of a vineyard, and he has two sons whom he wants to work in his vineyard. Now, interestingly here, he uses a word for son that you would not expect. The common word that we hear of, that you're familiar with, is weos, which simply means son. He uses a word here called technos, technos. And he does that, I think, not to confuse it with the son in the following parable, but for a reason even greater than that. This word here can be used metaphorically or literally to refer to children of all ages. And it actually can refer to male or female. It can refer to children or adults. Here, though, he's using it because behind this word is the idea of relationship. The idea of relationship. In other words, he's not addressing these sons as employees. He's not addressing them as servants. He's not addressing them as slaves. He's addressing them as a father speaks to his sons. It is in the context of family relationship, of family authority, and family responsibility. He's addressing them as sons whom he's raised, whom he's provided for, whom he's cared for, and now he calls them to work. Notice secondly this, that he comes to this, his two sons and he tells them, go work in the vineyard. Presumably he goes on two different occasions, although that's not really relevant to the story. Number three, both of these sons are both able and responsible to work in the vineyard. Both of them are both able and responsible to work in the vineyard. And although they are obviously not working when the father comes to them, that doesn't, isn't given to us as either good or bad. The emphasis is on the father's command and their response to him. Notice fourth. When he comes to the first son, he is met with a shockingly abrupt and forthright refusal to submit to his father's command. He says, go and work in my vineyard. Both of those are commands. And the son simply responds, I will not. Shocking. This is an incredibly proud, selfish, disrespectful response. It shows no respect or honor for the father's authority. It shows no affection towards the relationship that he has with his father. He shows no sense of responsibility to contribute to the work of the family. And he shows no desire to honor him in a cultural context in which honor, and particularly honor to your father, was paramount. It is a shocking answer. However, he, after he gives this answer, at some point, he comes to the realization of his offense. He's ashamed by his response. He is convicted by his disrespectfulness, his pride, his selfishness. And Jesus tells us that he regretted it and he went. He went. Let me make just one more note here on the terms. It's very important in this case. The Lord uses a specific term here. In the ESV, it's translated as he changed his mind. And in that case, that's actually not the best translation. Here in the NASB, he regretted it is. 
The term is metamelomine, and that's not important except for this. That the uh, term has the idea of showing regret, of feeling sorrow for a decision made. It's not the term for repentance that you're familiar with, metanoia, which speaks primarily of a change of mind, a change about the way one thinks about circumstances or decisions. So the word that Jesus uses here speaks about feelings. It's the inner response. It's not so much yet the change of mind. Now one has noted that for a Jewish conscience, remorse necessarily entails the duty of restoring what has been wrongfully won. However, that's not always the case. As a matter of fact, the same term that's used here is not used many times in the New Testament, actually. It's used also, however, of Judas in Matthew chapter 27, verse 3. It says that Judas, upon realizing the greatness of the sin that he had committed, felt remorse for betraying the Lord. He went to the chief priest and the elders, and he returned the 30 pieces of silver, throwing it into the temple sanctuary at their feet essentially. However, his remorse was totally self-focused. He was devastated by the horror of his failure and its implications. His remorse, his brokenness, his feeling of contrition was not matched with genuine sorrow before God. It wasn't toward God. It was toward himself. So what did he do? He went out and he hung himself. He had worldly sorrow, not godly sorrow. Here, however, the son in this story, the son in this parable, feels this inward remorse. He's crushed inside as his refusal to obey his father's command. He's bothered by his own reaction. He's bothered by his impudence. And the implication is, particularly in the light of the application we'll see later, that his offense that he felt, or the sorrow that he felt, was for his actual offense against the father. That it was against the father. That he had betrayed this relationship that he has with him and he felt sorrow. And so he went and did what his father commanded. He yielded to the will of his father. Notice next in verse 30. The father comes to the second son and gives the same command. And unlike the first son, the second response is one of obedience. He says, I will, sir. Or in our vernacular, it would be like saying, yes, sir. Yes, sir, I will do that. This response is respectful. It honors the relationship he has to the father. It takes responsibility for his role in the family. It embraces the work willingly as the right thing to do. And it gives an impression of obedience. It even gives the impression of love to his father, of concern to honor and appreciate his father by doing what he has been asked to do. However, Jesus tells us that he did not go. He does not actually leave to do the work that the Father had given him to do. And apparently, there is nothing that he sees wrong with this. He has no remorse over his failure to go. He simply doesn't care enough whether the work gets done or not. So one can only assume that this initial response that he gave was superficial. It was for appearance's sake. In other words, he was not concerned so much about doing what the father said as he was about giving the father a respectful greeting, get this, so the father would think well of him. So that he would stay in the good favor and the good graces of his father. In other words, he was more concerned with the father's perception and attitude toward him than he was about his own loving response and obedience in honoring the father. That's an important point. That's an important point. And so what does he do? Well, with his empty and self-focused response and lack of obedience, 
Jesus simply tells us he did not go to do the Father's will. Now that's a simple parable followed by a simple answer and a painfully obvious answer. So he asked them after that first question, which of the two did the will of his father? In other words, which of the two sons actually fulfilled the father's command? Which one actually yielded to the desire of his father and participated in the work that the father had called him to do? Which actually demonstrated the desire to honor their father? Fair enough question. So they look at him and they answer and they said, the first. And... They are correct. That's the right answer. It's a painfully obvious answer. It's the only answer. Jesus did not ask which one did the will of his, or Jesus did not ask which one said they would do the Father's will, but which one actually went and did the work in the vineyard. It's the only answer that could be given. And beloved, let me suggest to you that the very simplicity and obviousness of the story and of the answer are what make it so profoundly powerful. It's what makes it so penetrating is its simplicity and its obviousness because it exposes guilt in a uniquely powerful way. Now Jesus is going to apply it next to their rejection of him and John the Baptist. And again, he's driving the nails deeper into their coffin and leaving them without excuse for their unbelief. So let's look thirdly here at the devastating condemnation. The devastating condemnation beginning in verse 31. And I'll notice here that Jesus does not take time to acknowledge the correctness of their answer. He simply moves to the point. He says to them, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and the prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. This is a shocking reversal. Before you does not mean that these are necessarily going to follow after. That's not his point here. By saying before you, he's simply saying that you who think you're at the front of the line, in fact, will be passed by these whom you have rejected and written off as being outside of the will of God. They are the ones who are going to be in the kingdom before you. Now, the Gospels record to us that some of these leaders did believe. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, but most of them did not. Most of them did not. There were few. And so this is a shocking and a devastating indictment. In fact, it's not possible to give a more striking and deeply pointed condemnation of the whole structure and perception of these religious leaders and the false religious system that they operated in. Again, these leaders are clearly the keepers of the law, the teachers of the people, the guardians of the temple. They would be the rightful citizens of God's kingdom. Were they not doing the will of God? And let me ask you a question. If you were there in the first century listening to Jesus say these words in that context, what would you think? What is the way that you evaluate spiritual life? How do you determine what spiritual life actually is? Let me tell you. I think many of us would have probably thought they were the ones getting in. But Jesus turns that around. And he says, in fact, it's not you. It is those who were the dregs and the scum of society in their eyes. And then he gives the reason for this rejection, flipping their thinking upside down. And he says, this is why. For for John came to you, verse 32, in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did believe him, and you, seeing this, did not feel remorse afterwards so as to believe in him. 
In other words, they rejected God's double witness. They rejected the righteousness and the will of God that was evident in everything that John the Baptist did, both in his ministry, in his message, and in his life. But that's only one level of rejection. The second level of rejection, he says, even when you saw the righteousness of God revealed in the work that it accomplished in the hearts of these other people, the mercy of God extended to them, the changed lives, you rejected that also. You rejected that also. You've rejected God's witness at every point, at every point. And they had to reject the witness because, as we mentioned last week, if they accepted the witness, it would condemn both them for their rejection of John and the rejection of Christ. Matter of fact, when these people repented, not only should they have seen their wrong evaluation of Jesus and been remorseful, not only were they not those things, but they were even hardened more in their rejection of Christ. They totally discounted these people. Don't turn there. Let me mention to you, this is the way that God works. Listen to Romans 11, verse 14. Paul is here speaking of his ministry to the Jews. And he says this, speaking of his ministry, or excuse me, his ministry to the Gentiles. And he says, this is the effect that he longs for it to have. In fact, that God even designed in his ministry. He says, I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am, mag- I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. In other words, Paul's saying, as the crop of Gentiles are brought into the kingdom of God that was originally for Israel, it should move them to jealousy and cause them to repent. That's essentially what Jesus is saying here. That even when you saw these riffraff, the outcasts, the scum, the rejected ones coming in, it should have moved you to some kind of jealousy to want what they had, but you refused even that. So what is the point of the parable? It's this, it's simple enough. At the end of the day, the tax collectors and prostitutes who did are the ones who did the will of God. They are the first son. These are the ones who knew the will of God and the law, and they said, I will not do it. They had grown up with the law, they understood it, they, but they rejected God's word, they rejected his righteousness, they scorned him, they dishonored him, and they pursued a life of satisfying their own lust and their own will and their own way. They lived lives of greed, deception, and self-interest and all manner of wickedness. But then God did something wonderful. He sent John the Baptist. And when they heard the message of God through John, they were convicted by their sin and their rebellion to God. They knew they had scorned him. They disobeyed the covenant. They knew they were guilty. They felt remorse over their lives and they repented toward God. And many of them also were turned toward Jesus. They accepted John's message of the kingdom and they turned toward Jesus also to hear his message of the kingdom. And to some measure, they had accepted Jesus as the one whom God had sent. And even some out of those numbers who did believe in Jesus gained entrance into the kingdom. They gained a righteousness that Jesus said in Matthew 5 surpassed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And ultimately, that would be done, of course, through the work that Christ was going to do on the cross and in the resurrection. But these are the ones who, like the sinner in Luke 18, they cried out, Be merciful to me, the sinner, and they were justified. They perceived the righteousness of God, they responded, and they were made righteous by Christ. 
The Jewish leaders, however, gave lip service, but did not do the will of God. They are the second son. They heard God's will and the law, and they said, Yes, sir. Yes, Lord. We will do it. And they lived external lives of discipline and devotion to the will of God. And yet, in their heart, they retained the love of sin. They retained inside of them a love of their own authority. They sought their own glory, which Jesus repeatedly confronts them for. They did not truly love God, nor His will, nor His honor. They said things, but they did not do them. As Jesus will say in Matthew 24, they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. They were hypocrites. So when John came in the way of righteousness, they refused to acknowledge his ministry and they refused to acknowledge God's righteousness and presence in it. Why? Because it exposed their own pride and sin. And as was mentioned, they became increasingly hardened in their rejection of Christ to the point that their hatred was reaching a fever pitch as we go through these final days with Jesus. They did not feel remorse before God. They refused to acknowledge their guilt. They refused to feel sorry for their dishonoring of the Lord. And they refused to repent in unbelief. And again, as they saw these others repenting, it no doubt not only did not convict them, but it irritated them. It frustrated them. They were annoyed by this. They were annoyed by the fact that these who are supposedly outside of the kingdom are believing in this one they've rejected. Matthew 9.11, the Pharisees saw Jesus dining with the, some of the same crowd. And he says, why, they said, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and the sinners? Reject them. Get rid of them. Why isn't he coming over to us? Why isn't he with God's true messengers and true servants? So they, like many others, who especially unconverted religious people, refused to submit their lives to Christ. Now, that's the story and the answer. I want to take the last few minutes to draw out some principles from this. Four principles, actually. Four principles. And the first is this. And we have to understand this. Unbelief is the direct result of sin and an unwillingness to humble oneself before God. Unbelief is the direct result of sin and a refusal to humble oneself before God. And this is a very important point. They did not believe because of a proud refusal to humble themselves. In other words, unbelief is not neutral. It's not neutral. It's not a neutral condition that fall of man is passively subject to. In other words, like, I just don't have that ability to believe. In other words, it's just a condition that I'm forced into. No, unbelief is attached to something much deeper than that. It's attached to wickedness. Unbelief is a condition. It's the fruit of a proud rejection of God's authority and the love of sin and unrighteousness. It is the fruit of a life lived in rebellion to God. Unbelief is attached to our fallenness. Jesus would repeatedly say this to these leaders and to others, but he, when he gives them the, the condemnation for their refusal to believe in them, he says this in Matthew 23, 37. He says, you were unwilling. You were unwilling God is not keeping you from believing. God is not keeping you from His grace. You are refusing to come. In Romans 8, Matthew says, or Paul says, that refusal to subject the life and the mind to God is viewed by God as, do you know it? Hostility towards Him. It's hostility. It's hostility. 
Jesus said that men don't come to him the light because they love the darkness. That's the issue. The one who's willing to humble themselves before God will enter the kingdom like a child, dependent on grace. Let me make a second point with that. And again, this is very important for us to understand. Believing or exercising faith in God's word is not an option. It's a matter of obedience. That is this. To not believe God's testimony of himself is sin. It's sin. It is high treason. It is a great offense against God. Listen to what John says in 1 John chapter 3. You can turn there. I'm going to read two verses from there. 1 John chapter 3. You don't have to. Verse 23, he says this. This is his commandment. This is a commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Listen to verse 10 of chapter 5. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself, the assurance, the confidence, the reality that he is in fact all he said he was. The one who does not believe in God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. Do you hear those words? Unbelief is high treason. If we do not believe the testimony that God has given toward his son, we are calling God a liar. If you, this morning, do not believe in the testimony that God has given toward his son, you are calling God a liar essentially to his face. It is not as you said it is, is what unbelief says. So we have to understand their unbelief here is sin. All unbelief is sin, and it's attached to our wickedness. Second point is this. True faith is not demonstrated by what we say. It's demonstrated by what we do. Now, you know that point. Let's be reminded of it. These religious leaders were never remiss in honoring God with their lips, but it did not match the reality of their hearts. It did not match the reality of their hearts. They were those who said, but did not do. Those who professed, but did not live what they professed. Saying good things or praising God with our lips or our pen is not the measure of faith. Theological knowledge... Bible knowledge is not the measure of faith. And learning more about the Bible is not the measure of maturity. It's not. All it is is it means you know more or that we've learned more. Spiritual life is measured by trusting and obeying Christ out of thankful worship for what he has done on the cross. That's what it is. It is obeying the will of God. If you want to know if you are growing in Christ, don't listen to the words of your mouth. Look at your life and say, do I want to love him more today than I did a month ago? Is obedience in my life more thorough today than it was then? Do I serve others with a humble heart more today than I did last year? That is the measure of spiritual maturity. Not what you know, not how many books have been read, and not how adept you've become at apologetics. It's nothing. It is a life that is changed. Listen to what Jesus said in 12, Matthew 12, 50. He says, whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. 
You want to know if you're in the family of God? Don't look at if you grew up in a Christian family or if you're a Jew. Look at whether you do the will of His Father, which begins with believing on His Son. You know, it's very easy to give lip service. We won't turn there for the sake of time. Do you remember Israel when they were before God at Mount Sinai? Three times, three times on that occasion there, they said when they heard the words of God, we will obey the Lord. And what did they do? They disobeyed Him. They made a calf. They scorned His providence. They refused to trust in Him. They refused to get rid of their idols. And they refused to walk in holiness as He is holy. But they professed with the utmost conviction. But it was all empty. Let me give you another verse you're familiar with. Matthew 21. He says to the 721, to the same, or to the same culture anyway, of those who knew the religion of Israel but did not know the God of Israel. He says this in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It's not right confession even about who Christ is. If you can defend the Trinity and defend the deity and humanity of Christ and explain with detail the atonement and confirm the resurrection, that is not salvation. That's what you need to know to be saved. It's what you need to believe. But it is entrusting your life to that same Christ and doing the will of the Father. It is a transformed life of obedience and submission. Let's make that more practical than this. It's not saying that the Bible is God's word. I come from a culture, largely in my growing up years down in the South, that many people will agree that God's Word, the Bible, is God's Word. Many, many will do that. It's not just saying that it is God's Word. It is actually coming to God's Word, longing to hear God's voice in it. It is coming to God's Word where you find delight in observing His ways. Where you read the pages of Scripture and you delight in seeing the character of God. Where you find real strength that transmits into obedience and hope in life because of His promises and the work that He did in Christ. It's being made to see our own sin and saying, I want to learn how to walk in righteousness. It's coming to God's Word with delight because Christ is revealed there. Because hope is given in there and because you delight in him it's not simply saying it it's actually delighting in the god who's revealed in it as a matter of fact jesus said this and then we'll move on to the third point he said this in john 15 he says abide in me and i in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine so neither can you unless you abide in me that means remain in me remain close in me Stay connected to me by faith, by trust, and by yielding. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them, and they are cast into the fire, and they are burned. He is not speaking there about their works, but about those themselves, the people themselves who had some attachment to Christ, and yet did not demonstrate that in their life. He says, if you abide in me, and listen to this, and my words abide in you. By my Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And just as the Father loved me, I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. That's what it means to love God's word. 
is to have it abiding in you where you bear fruit, the fruit of fellowship with the Father and the Son. Thirdly, this. Righteousness is not a matter of externals, but an inward love for God and submission to His will. These are all things that these leaders didn't get. This is the mask that false religion hides behind. Righteousness is not a matter of externals, but inward love for God and submission to His will. Where inside the child of God, the deepest part of them, no matter how much they may fail, is to honor the Lord with their life and to do His will. Another way to say it is this. True spirit-produced obedience is not simply a matter of doing. It is the loving response of a believer that trusts in God and submits to His will for their life. It flows from our union with Christ by the Spirit. It flows from a life and a heart that has been cleansed by His death, that has participated in His life through the resurrection, and that wants to submit to Him and honor Him and yield to Him. Again, just listen to this from 1 John. This is the message we've heard from Him announced to you. God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of His Son, the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. That's where righteousness flows from. Union with Christ who died and rose again from us. Fellowship with the Father and Son wherein the nature of God is imparted to us by the Spirit and we want to walk in holiness and obedience where we share in the very life of Christ by the Spirit. They claimed to be serving God but at the end of the day they did not submit to His authority. So I'll say again, obedience is not just a matter of doing, but it addresses the attitude of the heart toward God and all that He is for us in Christ. And it's displayed in the reality of a present relationship of abiding Him and serving Him, which includes confession of sin. Fourth and finally, God's grace reaches to the worst sinner in the lowest depths of sin. It reaches to the worst sinner in the lowest depths of sin. There is not a sinner who has existed That is beyond the grace of God. These tax collectors and these prostitutes lived morally corrupt lives. They were the epitome of disobedience. They were the epitome of rejection of God's covenant. They lived lewd, destructive, and destroying lives both for themselves and those around them. They threw the truth of God to the ground. They scorned Him and they mocked His word. They were the low ones. They were the outcast, and in one sense, rightfully so. And yet, isn't it amazing that these are the ones that God's grace reached before the religious leaders of Israel? These are the ones that made it into the kingdom. These are the ones that knew the cleansing and the forgiving grace of God. Words that we're familiar with, we need to lay hold of. Because I am convinced that there are some who are among us that these words apply to directly. Listen. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That is the gospel. He came to call, in one sense, these leaders, 
but he in another sense didn't because they are not the ones who would acknowledge their sin. And so they needed no repentance. These others, they knew it. They knew it. And Paul, when he went to this same group of people and he appealed to them with the message of the gospel of Christ, he said in Romans 10, I confess that they have a zeal for God. They have one, but it's not according to acknowledge. Establishing their own righteousness, they have neglected the righteousness of God. But Christ is the end of righteousness for those who believe. He's the end of the law, excuse me, for those who believe. He's the end of it. He's the end of it. Christ came to call sinners, but he did not come to call righteous people. The issue isn't whether the particular manifestation of your sin or what it is. It's only the willingness to acknowledge it and to receive totally the grace of God in Christ. And that is a glorious truth. And oh, how we could wish that that were the truth that Christ meditated on after this. But as we'll see next week, it isn't. And this indictment of these leaders is only going to go down yet another layer as we come face to face with the blindness and the hardness of unbelief in these of all people who should have loved Christ and received the Messiah as their God and as their Savior. My question is, as we always lay before you, have you received Christ? Do you see yourself as a sinner? Do you trust in Him alone by grace? Do you see in your life a desire to know Him, to increase in your fellowship with Him? to love Him and His Word abiding in you. That is the test. That is the test. For those who do, it is only a reason to increase and praise in our praise for the grace that He has extended to us in the Son by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Our Lord Jesus, we thank You for the clarity of Your teaching. We thank You for the clarity of Your revealing and exposing the heart of and belief. And we like to let our minds dwell only on those happy things, the promises of grace, and that certainly is present in this passage. We like to think only of the delightful things of all that we have received in Christ. But sadly, unbelief and rejection, even among the religious, is a reality. You would not have warned against it so repeatedly if it were not an issue that was epidemic, that was serious. We know your own warnings towards the church at the end of the age that it was, is being now, even now, primed for that great apostasy. That means that your professing church will be filled with those who like these leaders who seem to be a part of your kingdom, who seem to be a part of your people, are yet devoid of love for you, devoid of inner repentance over their sin, devoid of the true knowledge of you through your word, and are in fact under the influence of the devil and not the Spirit of God. It's a reality. Help us to examine ourselves. Help us to have compassion on others. Lord, who even now are like those tax collectors and prostitutes who are living immoral lives. May we have compassion on them and bringing to them the message of forgiveness in Christ. And may we, who know you, demonstrate that glorious reality of abiding in you 
bearing the fruit of love and joy and holiness and peace. May we demonstrate those who indeed have the Spirit of God abiding in us, who draws us evermore to delight and see the glory of Christ and the glory of the Father in Him. We thank you again for forgiveness of our sin. We thank you for your Son. And it's in His most matchless and precious name that we pray. Amen.